Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Wimmel Gore is the Head of Bond, Income and Defensive Strategies at Pendle Group formerly known as BT Investment Management. Wimmel is the first bond-focused investor to be profiled for the Australian Investors Podcast, and I think you'll agree he is very intelligent and articulate, delivering complex ideas in a very concise and thoughtful manner. At the time we recorded this episode, Wimmel oversaw the management of around $19 billion, with his principal focus being the protection of wealth. As always, we talk about Wimmel's early life and career, lessons learned, how his team identify opportunities, and the outlook for multiple asset classes globally, 
and in Australia. I trust you'll enjoy this conversation with Wimmel Gore of Pendle Group. Wimmel, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. I should tell you how this show came to be. I was on Twitter and my friend Joe Mager said to me, uh, you know, he would be a really good guy to interview for bonds and fixed income and defensive strategies is Wimmel. And here you are. So um, Joe is someone that uh, I deeply respect. And mm-hmm. so I'm really excited to have you on the show. So once again, thanks for joining me. No, thank you. And it's unusual to get invites to podcasts. Normally, you know, the, the area I work in are more the institutional area. Yep. And so it's it's refreshing and quite, you know, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah, slightly different audience, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But um, nonetheless, it'll be very interesting. Why don't we jump off with you just effectively giving us the the bonds 101 yeah uh, a lot of our listeners are familiar with equities or shares because that's uh something that they do in passing or mm-hmm. as a full-time career not many of them i'd say are familiar with the world of bonds and fixed income especially globally yeah so if you can let's set the scene what are bonds the key features key things that you look at when you're yeah. deciding how to allocate money yeah. So fixed income is is classed the boring asset class. Hmm. It's the defensive asset class is the area which isn't sexy. It's not as interesting um, from from a superficial view as equities. And that's why it gets a lot less press. And there are periods, for example, the GFC or the European crisis in 2012, when it comes on the front of the headlines and then disappears again. Hmm. But generally bonds are I mean, I would argue that bonds are the kind of bedrock of the financial system and everything keys off the US Treasury market. So a bond is effectively just a loan. Bonds have been around in one form or another since mm. I think it was about 2400 BC. Hmm. So they've been around for ages. And effectively, it's just, it's a, it's a variation on giving a loan to a friend. So I could lend you $100 today and get it back in a year's time plus $10 interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll give you $100, you give me $110 back. Or I could give you 100 dollars uh, you could give me a hundred dollars today um and then um i would give you five dollars in six months and then 105 in the end of the year so the but they're just person-to-person loans mm-hmm. all a bond is is effectively taking that and turning it into a structure so effectively governments use them to finance themselves mm-hmm. so it's how they pay for the budget deficits they run so they spend on things like policing um street lights medical and they get money in from revenues, which are effectively taxes, mm-hmm. and the offset is the budget deficit. And at times there'll be a surplus, and at times there'll be a deficit. And when there's a deficit, they need to fund that, and they issue bonds. So they might go and issue, over the course of years, say $10 billion of bonds, and they'll pass those up, and lots of individual people buy them. Now, generally, they've been bought by institutions, mm. and they come in large sizes, and that's why you don't find the retail investor generally engage with them. Also, the yields or rates of return them are not as sexy as they are in equities, and that's why they've tended to be away out of the retail sphere. Mm. And how about someone listening, thinking about it from a portfolio construction perspective? Mm. You mentioned that the returns aren't as sexy, yeah. but how would they play a role? How would uh, a mum and dad investor think about allocating to bonds? Yeah. So there's there's three main ways we can think about bonds and three roles they play within a portfolio. The first one is the defensive role. So if you own a high quality government bond, like an Australian Commonwealth government bond or a US Treasury bond, they have a negative correlation to equities. And what I mean by that is generally when equity markets are under stress and equity markets are falling, bonds rally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because effectively, if equity markets are under pressure, it means there might be a feedback loop onto economics and interest rates need to fall 
to reboost growth. Mm-hmm. And so there is this negative correlation in times of stress. The negative correlation doesn't exist all the time, but it exhibits itself in times of stress very much so. So you buy bonds as part of a broader balanced portfolio, really to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. The second way is about income. And that's really crucial to the marketplace uh, in terms of retail and wholesale investors. And as we come through and you get the baby boomers transfer, um, transitioning into retirement, it's about making sure those retirement dollars coming from are generated from somewhere. Now, obviously, you can get them out of dividends in equity, but bonds pay out in six monthly periods generally, semi-annually. Um, and then you can build funds. For example, we run a number of funds that pay, pay monthly in- income. Mm-hmm. And so they're great for actually generating income. And the third is for return seeking. So as I mentioned, you've got government bonds, which are very defensive. Mm-hmm. And then you can go out the risk curve in bonds. You can go out to investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, emerging market bonds, emerging market local currency bonds. You can shift all the way out to structured loans, all these kind of things. And as you go out that risk curve, the return goes up. And as you go out that risk curve, the, the potential return goes up, the potential risk goes up, and they look and have a much higher correlation with equities. Okay. So there's, there's really three ways, defensive, income, and return seeking. And really here, we focus ourselves on the first two. It's really about running either defensive portfolios, which are building blocks towards a, a, as a part of a bigger balanced portfolio, or as an income-producing asset for the retiree market. Okay. Now that we've got that under our belt, I'm keen to go back in your story and understand how you got to managing, how much is it today? Uh, 19 billion Aussie dollars. So that's the amount of money that you oversee here in Australia, which is remarkable. Uh, Where did your journey begin? Mm -hmm. Take us through early life, school and early career. I'm I'm fascinated. So it really started off, um, I I was quite a bad student, I'd say. I was just very lazy. Um, (laughs) And I went through... I didn't. I didn't really apply myself for many years, um, so I got you know mediocre grade to A level, um, and then went to a mediocre university. And then it was as I approached the final year of the university that I kind of thought, well, I better pull my finger out at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my dad had a large, long conversation with me, <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, I'm going to knuckle down um, at the final year of university. So I I knuckled down, um, worked really hard. I came top of the year. But because I'd had bad grades and been up until then and been to a, a middle-of-the-road university, I found it tough to get a job. So right. I, I kind of worked every angle I could. I cold call. I you know, pretty much worked everything to try and get a role. And I got a role as um, a trainee fund manager at Murray Johnston. So I came mm. in, at the, which was in uh, Glasgow at the time, and I came in as a trainee fund manager. Now, those roles don't exist now. Mm. I mean, this was back in 1994. And I remember it distinctly because... Um, my first day in the office was 7th of February, 94. And I'm not sure if you remember, but the 4th of February was when the Fed mm. hiked rates, you know, unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And the market had a serious meltdown on that day. So I came in the office on the Monday expecting this, this quiet introduction and it was carnage. Mm. You know, equity markets were getting crushed and there was just, but there was a buzz about the place. And I came in, as I mentioned, trainee fund manager, I came into the currency and fixed income team. And I was supposed to be rotated around every three months to different teams. So after three months, I was supposed to move into equities. But I put my hand up and asked if I could stay because I was enjoying it so much. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I've never looked back. And the thing that people don't realize about fixed income is that it is, I would argue, it's the most dynamic asset class in the world. So you've got equities on one side. Now, equities, are you've got private equity, um, all these kind of things on one side, or property, which are long-run 
you know, generally valuation plays. Yeah. Mm. So you're getting really grit, gritty deep down into balance sheets and you are spending a lot of time to work out an investment thesis, hypothesis, which you'll, which might play out over years. On the other side, you've got the currency markets, which are uber short term, where a lot of people put a trade on, go home flat on the day. And it's, it's just a variation of noise. Mm. And in the middle, you've got fixed income which moves on global themes and trends and seculars, but is also influenced on a day-to-day basis by the data and the economics. And so you have this, this wonderful ground in the middle where you can think about broader structural issues and secular issues, but also there's, a, there's always a level of excitement and adrenaline about it coming from the fact that it's, it's fast-paced and fast-moving. And then within fixed income, you've got one end, which is the macro, which I've spent most of my career in, which is the big end of town. It's like government bonds and currencies. Mm-hmm. And then go the, all the way through to credit and then where you still have a lot of balance sheet work. Um, and that links quite highly to equity. So it, it's, it's, it offers this unique position to, to kind of, one, pit yourself up against people on an intellectual basis every day. Mm-hmm. You get exposure to some of the absolute brightest minds you could ever imagine. Um, and then thirdly, you can actually do, do good. You can make a difference. Now, a lot of people think, oh, you're, you're a fund manager, you know, but, and, and they, they look down upon that and they view you as a banker or something. But ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're here to make money for their client, our clients to help them have a better retirement. So there's a, there's a large degree of wanting to do the best job you possibly can because it has an impact and an influence on people's lives at the end of the day. And ultimately, that's what our job is. Our job is to come in and to do the best we possibly can for our clients. And if you have this amazing work environment around you, well, that's a bonus. Mm. It seems like for, for most people that I talk to, at least when they would go on a rotation, let's say a graduate position, they would do the opposite of what you've mm. what you've done, and they would stick with the equities, and they wouldn't want to go over to the yeah. the, the the bond department if you like. They'd want to stay in equities. Um, I'm curious how you progress from Murray Johnson days mm-hmm. and uh, how you get to here in Australia. So during that period, which is quite a long stretch, admittedly, yeah. we've had the dot com crisis, mm-hmm. we've had the lead up to the GFC, and I'm particularly interested to pick your brains on those two yeah. times in your career. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you can just take them one by one. We'll start yeah. with the dot-com boom, what you were seeing, perhaps lessons learned, and then yeah. the same for the GFC. Yeah. Um, so there are two very, very distinct periods and two massively defining periods. But what's really interesting is they're two, that they came about and their influence of the bond market was completely different. In So I started in 94. I stayed at Murray Johnson, you know, running gilt funds, which are UK government funds. Um, and kind of looking at currencies and big, building up my my view on the world and started working on the global funds, moved to Scottish Mutual, in which was at that time owned by Abbey National, which is now owned by Santander, working on global government bun, funds, and then moved to um, Aviva Investors in 99. So I, was, I um, moved down to Aviva Investors and the dot-com boom was really kicking off at that point. But the impact on the on the bond market and the underlying economy was incredibly limited. Mm. So it gave me an, an, um, an ability, well, it gave me an opportunity to view a bubble with it not really having a mm. feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So it, it had a feedback loop after the bubble had burst and the Fed had to respond to it. But in terms of watching the euphoria, you know, front and center, so working in London, 
with dot-com going on and everyone you're speaking to all day is trading equities and buying equities and everyone's got personal wealth in. And because I was a few years into my career, I had no personal wealth. Mm -hmm. So I was not invested in any mm -hmm. of these stocks. So I was watching it as an innocent bystander. And you could see the levels of euphoria, the five waves of bubbles effectively. And, and you could watch it and I learned so much from that. And then then you realize that when it breaks, the feedback loop hits. And that was the first time you really get an understanding of that. It always was the assumption that economics drive asset markets. But then if you build a bubble, the, the bubble impacts the economics mm. and forces a central bank response. And arguably, you can, you can look at where we are now and say that the central bank response and the moral hazard we've built for all those years it's come out of that time, um, you know, Jones.com, where the Fed had right. to respond. You come into the GFC. Um, the GFC was, the GFC was so obvious. Now, I don't mean that in a, in a, like, in a, you know, I'm so intellectual way, but it was all of the hallmarks were there for crisis. But the problem is, when does a crisis play out? And trying to fade it is an expensive business. Mm. And it's kind of like where we are right now as well. And I'll, I'll link that in later when we talk about the, the global economy and our views later. But, you know, it was so obvious there were stresses, that there were, that there were problems in the U.S. mortgage market, the collateralization, the size of leverage on balance sheets. You know, like Northern Rock came out in early 2017 and they were 80 times levered. And they, and they, and because the regulators were asleep at the wheel. And the way that finance works is the regulators set boundaries and then central, and then the investment banks, the regulators, central banks set boundaries and the investment banks wait, work out ways to go around them. Mm. Yeah. And that's effectively what happens. And then if something happens, the regulator, um, backfills to that problem and then just causes another unintended consequence and you get the next bubble. And that's the cycle that always eventuates. But it was very obvious the GFC was coming. But what was really interesting is this dichotomy between the bond market expectations relative to equities. And you tend to find that when there's large large market changes, the bond markets react first, mm -hmm. and then equities tend to follow bonds. Um, and that's not always a case, but it tends to be at the large turning points. And it, it was it was absolutely. I mean, the GFC was a was a. Um, there's two ways to look at the GFC. It was a, it was a terrible time for the world economy, for people's savings, for people's livelihoods, for jobs, all these kind of things. And that is you know has to be taken. And to live through it with a lot of friends who were made redundant at that time, it it was quite sobering. But on the other hand, it was an incredible. Um, opportunity to trade and position markets and to learn through that period as well. Um, and uh, you mentioned that about me coming down here. Well, one of the reasons why I was headhunted out of London to come down here is that, you know, we, I had an incredibly strong GFC period, 07, 08. Right. Yeah, really, really strong, like massively outperformed on all the, all the funds I was running. And, and, you know, when, when, Pendle, a BT investment manager at that time, was looking for someone to come down. You know, th there wasn't many of us who had had many houses who had had a strong GFC. And that's because of the, the philosophy and the way I think about bonds and the way that I learned to think about bonds. Hmm. Right. So let's talk about that because that's the, I suppose, the, the link in the chain to now hmm. is you, you've come, you've relocated back to Australia. Oh, to Australia. I'm English. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You've, yeah you've come to Australia, hmm. you've settled here. Young family. Yep. Yep. Um, how did how did you find Sydney? Yeah. So I I knew Australia very well because when I was at Aviva, we had a lot of clients down here. So I travelled down for business. Mm -hmm. um, I used to come down. I used to. I've been running Australian uh, bonds and currencies for since ninety four. 
pretty much since I started the market. So I've got you know 25 years of now, but at the time I had 15 years of experience. So I used to come down and see the RBA a lot, go over to New Zealand. I had lots of friends in town. So I'd actually been here, I think about 30 times before I actually moved here. And my wife had never been down here. So she took a gamble and we came down. Um, but after London, it was the place where I had the most friends in the world. So it was, it was a very easy transition for me. Um, but, you know, it's, it's funny, but when you manage, so when you manage Australian bonds from London, you're thinking about the macro picture. Mm. But when you come down here and you're managing Australian domestic funds, you realize there's so many little quirks and the way we do things over here, mm. which are just different. And it mm. takes a bit of a time to appreciate them. Would you say that that works both ways? Oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah. And, and when you, and I think one of the reasons why, um, you know, we've been successful is the way we think about it is like for us, Australia is just a subset. It's a subset of the world. And we can prove statistically that the main driver of Australian bond yields is US bond yields. So by sitting here looking at US, um, Australian domestic data solely, you're missing the big picture. And what's happening in maybe Italy or Japan or China or the US is a much larger influence. And you have to have the ability to look at those markets, understand what's happening in those markets and how that relates back to Australia. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, um, when I came down in um, and was appointed my role in 2010 that was the first thing i did it's like let's build out the global process like a truly global process where we look at us europe uk japan and australia and then the value between them all and let's open up the opportunities that we have is just trying to position australian bonds by themselves is a is quite a difficult thing if you don't have that worldview so perhaps for people that maybe aren't familiar can you explain where pendle comes from and perhaps they know the company but they don't know the name so can you fill us in on that yeah i think that's a great question i mean with pendle's been around for about 40 50 years now we were originally bt funds management and then we were bought by the westpac group we were bt investment management and we recently rebranded to pendle and the great thing about this company is it's it's a pure asset management company where we manage assets do uh, construct portfolios for our clients and we don't uh, we're not bank aligned. Mm. And so post the Royal Commission, that's a really strong point for us. Mm. My role is head of bond income and defensive strategies. And there's mm-hmm. three areas which I focus on. The first one is bonds, which is the defensive element. It's this negative correlation to equities in times of stress that we talked about. Mm-hmm. It's about bond funds as a building block for a broader balanced portfolio to help you build a portfolio that's diversified and can weather most environments. The second one is about income strategies, and that's about for the retiree market. Again, kind of one-stop solutions or or funds that will play specific niches, but like, for example, we have a fund that pays monthly income. We have another one that accesses emerging markets, but you know, opportunistically. Mm-hmm. But it's about making sure the retiree has the ability to get that income they need. And then recently, we launched a volatility fund, mm. uh, one of the largest vol funds in the world. And I'll talk a bit about that in terms of volatility and how we're thinking a bit a little a little bit later but that's the defensive element so effectively how if you really want if you're an institution and you want explicit coverage against an equity market drawdown well this enables you to get it mm. so i have a team of um i think it's about 15 i think it's six pms we have a very large team of quants and that's because fixed income is a very mathematical um mm. s- subject you need to have a very strong understanding of the maths behind it the numbers you know the curves how curves are constructed and then, um, but you can't just take that and use that to position because then you need experience. Mm. And so, you know, I've got six very experienced PMs up in my desk, and then we have a number of quants and analysts. And that enables us to run 
Um, and number of funds, we have a much smaller um, uh, range of funds than our competitors, but they're all about this whole defensive element. It's like we want to own the defensive space, you know, and I think we do down here. It's about if you want a defensive product, um, you you come to see us and we will try and protect you as much as we can. And it's about building funds which are true to label and as transparent as they possibly can be. Okay, we've, we've talked a little bit about or you've talked to the, the lay of the land globally and how you've built the team out, but mm. can you... Uh, provide a bit of colour on the market here in Australia relative to global markets, mm-hmm. where you focus most of your attention, and I suppose some of the the, the data points or the the resources that you look to to mm-hmm. inform your view from an entire universe global economy's perspective. Yeah. I mean, it, it's I mean this market is great. It's it's brilliant because it it largely follows the trends you see in the US and and UK mm-hmm. or US and Europe with a five year lag. So in terms of your product set and the things you're thinking about, it's quite easy to think about where the market's going because, you know, if you go over to London and, and New York re- frequently, as I do, you speak to the asset consultants there and the clients there, you get an understanding of what's coming down here. Mm-hmm. So Australia's moving to, uh, I'll talk about the, the, the large structural thematics and then I'll talk about the more and the you know, narrow down of fixed income. In terms of large structural thematics um esg sustainable is is in fixed income is coming down here in a in a very strong way um it's it's following on in in europe so in europe you have to have a strong esg stance and policy tweet before you could even have the conversation with a client the first question is is tell me about your esg stance and then if they like that, then you can start talking about the product. Or, But if you don't have that, if you're not able to articulate that in a coherent um, and you know, and a coherent and, and a full manner, well, then they just don't want to know. And I think that's a great, um, that's a great thing that, that this ESG push is happening across the world because we are stewards of capital. We do have an influence. Mm. And the second thing that's happening down here is the, is the shift to, from active to passive and the ETFization, for want mm-hmm. of a better world, of our markets. And that is good as well in a way. It, it means that ultimately you lose some funds, but it means that there's general better understanding of your asset class, more people can access it, more people have the ability to build their own portfolios without having to rely on going into big managed funds. So from that point of view, it's a great thing. In terms of the fixed income marketplace in Australia, um, it, it's slightly different to the overseas markets in that we're in continued growth. So because we have our compulsory superannuation, you know the f- pool of funds is growing every year. And therefore, you've got the behemoth asset managers growing up, the likes of Aussie Super, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they're, com- they're changing the composition of the market down here by the size they can move assets around and the mandates and the and the engagement they require. Mm-hmm. Um, so spending a lot of time working on IP transfer, how you can work with large clients is very crucial. It's, it's about these symbiotic relationships you can have with people to make everyone's life better. Whereas when you're in the UK, it's really about, okay, well, I'm one of six managers for you and I, I, I um, perform a role on this portfolio. And but we don't really engage much more than that. Down here, it's much more symbiotic relationships. It's much deeper relationships. And I think that's a function of there being you know, less asset managers down here and everyone knows each other. So you can build these long-term relationships. In terms of the asset management community, so there is also um, a large resilience on credit down here. And you tend to find that a lot of managers rely on credit to generate their excess return over a benchmark return. And that's by just running long positions all the time. Um, And that does give you 
uh, over the cycle, this excess return, but it's, it's kind of my view is, well, if the client had wanted the long position in credit, they could do that via their asset allocation. They, they come to us to add alpha, or they come to us because we can do something that they can't do. Mm-hmm. And just running a, an overweight in credit relative to govies is something they can do very easily. So we focus ourselves on, on generating capital returns by putting alpha trades in the portfolio. So which is different to a lot of managers who rely a lot more on effectively accrual books. So we do distance ourselves and have a much differentiated product set than our competitors. Now, we're not saying it's any better, but we're saying it is differentiated. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've been quite successful. Okay. One question I ask of all of our guests is to consider is to, to consider the, the listeners at home and, and give them an appreciation of how you refine your universe and how you think about it. Yeah. And because you're the first uh bond investor on the show it's it, i imagine it's quite different usually i would say what's the size of your universe yeah. how large is it and how do you filter it and what yeah. are you looking for so i'll ask that question <laughs> to you how do you think about it in terms of this is the universe um is there a bottom-up methodology mm-hmm. top down etc yeah well if we come at it right from the, the kind of the top down view for, for your listeners i mean that they will probably have their most experience with hybrids mm. so you've got tds which Let's be honest, our reversion of bonds to be, you know, they're non-tradable, but they are reversion of bonds. You're lending money to the bank. They're giving you a rate of return back. I mean, it's, it's a variation on a bond. Then you've got hybrids, which are effectively, you know, they sit above equities on the capital structure, but, um, but they're, they're, um, they're there to, you know, to provide a little bit more yield with, with some degree of safety. And then you start going up into corporate bonds and then you go to govy bonds. So really it's, it's, it's to my, my message is that, you know, you don't have to stop at hybrids because at times of stress, you know, term deposits won't give you an, they'll give you a return, but they won't give you a negative correlation. So it won't give you a balancing uh, impact in your portfolio. Neither will hybrids because hybrids will, will effectively become correlated to equities in times of stress. So while both of these asset classes have, um, have a valid role to play within a portfolio, you can't forget about government bonds because mm-hmm. government bonds effectively the only asset class that in times of stress will give you a negative correlation to equities. You look at every other asset class in your portfolio, you've got equities, you've got international equities, you've got property. Um, some people have private equity, they have um, hybrids. None of these will give you a negative correlation. The only thing you can pretty much own that gives you a negative correlation to equities is government bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, government bonds are hard to own because you can't go and buy them. If you're a self-managed super fund, you can't go and buy a, a lot of government bonds because you, know, you can buy them off the RBA, but they'll charge you a very large spread to get them on. Mm-hmm. And so you really need to start coming into managed funds to get that exposure. The other thing to remember about fixed income is when you're buying an equity index, so you say you're buying the ISX or the S&P, it's an it's a asset benchmark mm-hmm. effectively so if google goes up or amazon goes up they're waiting in that benchmark goes up because they've got more their market capitalization capitalization goes up mm-hmm. so therefore the more successful the company the higher its weight in the index and so it's a good thing to own the index because effectively the the company's change in their their relative performance depending on how good they're performing mm. bonds are the opposite bonds are a debt weighted benchmark so you know, if you if you own a government bond index in Italy, which is arguably a basket case, issues a lot more bonds. Well, if you have a passive fund, well then their 
they kind of have to buy those bonds. So the quality of your benchmark is deteriorating. The other thing that can happen in the benchmark is you can get changing duration. As governments issue more and more long-dated debt, as they are now, well, then you see the duration of your benchmark change. So it's very different um, managing, and these cause problems for people. And it, you know, it's hard enough managing as an asset manager, a large institutional asset manager, but being being a um, you know an uh, individual investor trying to get your head around these problems is is you know it's 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 a big deal. Mm-hmm. And no wonder so many people have shied away and just stay in TDs or stay in um, uh, hybrids. But the the key thing to to kind of realise is. There is a role for these asset classes. Trying to do it yourself is is difficult and dangerous, but you do need them. So it's worthwhile looking into ways you can access them. And it might be just to put a, a part of your portfolio in either a managed fund, you know, preferably with me, or mm. you know, but or an ETF. But you do need this. There is a very valid reason for having fixed income within portfolios. And that's why pretty much every institutional investor in the world has them. Mm. How about when so do you ever get your hands dirty looking from bottom up, uh, ever look at credit and you're analyzing individual securities? Can you take us through some of the, the, the variables that you consider, hmm. um, you know, d- d- credit ratings, et cetera, yeah. underlying cash flow metrics? Yeah, um, I don't, but um, I've, my guys in my team do and they're incredibly good at it. Good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, the brief I give to my guys is, that, so you go, there's lots of, I think there's like, 30 asset managers in Australia who who um, who do fixed income. There's five of us of the material size. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go much further down the credit curve. A lot of them go into private debt. They go into junk. They go into subordinated debt. My guys generally work in investment grade up. Okay. And the brief I have my guys is, and the way we think about it, the way we position ourselves is we want to access, so we're defensive. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if we can add alpha, that's great and it works very well. But generally, our job is to access market accrual for you, but pull back if we believe the environment's getting stressed or or looking um, um, somewhat. Um, it, if the environment's getting stressed or look or there's things concerning us about it. So when we look at credit bonds, uh, my brief is to the credit portfolio managers in my team is to access the market accrual, but I don't ever want to default. And if things are looking a bit rocky, I want you to pull your, your risk down, right. which is slightly different to the way um, other people run it here. But we run a very high quality book. And when you look at our metrics relative to our peer group in Australia, we run the highest quality fixed income portfolios of in Australia. And now in terms of the metrics we look at, well, interest cover is one of the key ones. But really, it's about covenants. It's about what covenants are. When you, when you lend someone money, they give you a number of um, clauses or or um, understandings back, and that is, for example, say say you lend money to a company which has two coffee shops, yeah, and they say, okay, I've got two coffee shops, and you lend them some money. Well, if they sold one of those coffee shops and then paid themselves a massive dividend, hmm. well, then you've lent them a lot of money, but your asset base is half the size. So there's a covenant which generally says if you sell any of your assets, you have to reinvest them into business or pay off your loans. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's these covenants about interest quality, interest coverage, um, credit ratings, all these kind of things. What's really interesting across the world right now is this credit quality, this covenant have been falling and people are lending more and more money to credit uh, to credit institutions or people who want to borrow money with, with less, um, less safety. 
And that's something that really concerns us. But we really work in the very high quality, big end of town where it's about we want to access the market for you. So it's like accessing the S&P, but making sure you don't own any dogs. Yeah. But that's pretty much what we do. We just want to access the, the universe security you can have um, as an index and make sure that you can get exposure to that, but we'll pull your risk levels back if something looks awry. Yeah, right. That makes sense. How about, you mentioned it earlier on, this phrase, uh, ETFization. I've, I don't think I've heard that before, but... I think I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with it. Yeah, so, passivization, passivization, the passification. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So we, you, you mentioned it. It's easier. It's probably easier now more than ever before to get access to debt markets. Yeah. So an investor can buy a, a bond ETF on the ASX, for example. What, if any, concerns do you have about passively investing in an index? And you've mentioned hmm. some of the things to do with yeah. uh, the credit quality or the quality of the issuers, the total debt. Is there anything else that you see yeah. uh, as an issue? I think the... I think the the move to these new products is excellent. I think the ability for the end investor to build their own portfolios without having to pay large fees to intermediaries, I think is an excellent thing. Obviously, if they have the ability to do so, or um, but uh, there are a number of issues with with ETFs. And you know, when you go to high quality ETFs, which give you an exposure to something, well, then that's great. It's just the problem is it's all the variations that happen. Um, so one of the so whoever you buy a bond ETF from, you're going to have this issue of a debt-weighted benchmark, mm. and you can have this issue of varying duration and varying credit quality. But that's nothing you can get around that. So you have to be aware of that underlying problems with ET- within the ETFs. Um, the second thing is, is how the ETF builds its exposures. You know, so within fixed income, um, if you're buying retail bonds, et cetera, there's very, the costs are quite large, and they're generally inbuilt into the ETF. And so the the exposure, sorry, the price you'll pay for an ETF will be materially higher than would be if you bought a managed fund. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it gives you the the direct holding and the ability to see it on your holdings platform on you know, your online broker, but there you pay a significant cost for doing so. Um, and I think like if you look at the S and P ETFs and all these ones, they're great. The ability to access these things is, I think, is is you know brilliant for the end investor. But you have to be very aware of what you're buying and the different you know, restrictions and guidelines and makeup of every ETF will have a material impact on its on its performance. And I think at some point, though, within, you see, e- ETFs and government bonds, I think are absolutely fine, as long as they've been built correctly and understand how they work. It's when you start coming on to this mismatch of liquidity, and everyone talks about this mm. all the time, that ETFs give an illusion of liquidity because they're daily priced instruments, whereas the things that sit within them underlying are not daily priced. So you can get ETFs um, that the price in New York time on emerging markets in Asia, which are closed, but mm-hmm. they're still price make. So yeah, and then you get things you can get emerge you can get ETFs on a high yield, which don't price at all, might not trade in the market, but they're daily pricing it. So at some point, when the next credit event happens, you will get a problem in these ETFs. Mm-hmm. Now it's the same way I was on records a year before the short VIX ETFs blew up. Um, I think I had an uh, interview with the IFR saying that our risk was that you go and cleanse the system by the short fix all going down. It's very clear that you're going to have the same problem in in bond ETFs in some form or another, not, not in Australia, but in the US. But the question is when. Mm. And that that's the problem. We know it's coming. It just it might be next year, it might be five years. Mm. Um, and that's the problem. That And also the embedded fees in them are quite large. 
So um, right now, I would say that as, as the market gets more mature and it grows and the proliferation of products, and the market self-polices, you know, it will clean up. If you go through a crisis, it will clean itself up. At that point, it's probably time to enter them. But right now, I think you're much better off going into, you know, managed funds where you're very clear exactly what you're getting and what the costs are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the, the issues that we saw during the GFC was this, uh, this liquidity freeze, if you like. There was massive discounts and premiums to mm-hmm. the underlying assets inside a, a bond ETF yeah. versus the price that people were putting up. So do you see something like that happening again? And and one of the the other takeaways from that, I suppose, is do ETFs create any type of systemic risk in bond markets? Yeah, very much so. And there's there's two ways to approach this. The first one is bond markets will freeze. There is no question. Bond markets quite freeze quite frequently. They froze up in December. And that's because um, if you look at equity markets, you can always trade equities. You might not like the price you get, but you can always trade them. Same with government bonds, because as a market maker, you are under regulation from the central bank. You have to make a price. So you can always trade government bonds every day. You can trade equities every day. Yeah, The stuff in the middle, the credit market, you can't. There's no one. It's kind of like a bit of a wild, wild west. So no one has to trade that market. They can just The market makers can refuse to make a price. So since the GFC, two things have happened. One is about the size of the balance sheet of investment banks, and the second one is about the credit quality of the bonds. In terms of the size of the balance sheet of investment banks, investment banks no longer act as the oil in the system, the lubrication. What used to happen pre-GFC was investment banks had large balance sheets. They would buy a bond off one person, they'd sit on it, and they'd sell it to someone else, and they'd take the bid off as bread. Yeah, and that, that facilitated a well-functioning market. Now, because of the regulation changes, Bar 3, et cetera, et cetera, um, you've had the, reg- the regulator squeeze the investment banks and pull leverage out of the system, and now they act as agency brokers. So effectively, they'll only sell something on. They'll only buy it when they've already sold it on. Therefore, the market gaps a lot more, liquidity is really dried up. So that's one issue. So that means that the market, the credit market, is much more susceptible to to closing than they would have done in the past. The second issue is the quality of issuance has fallen materially since the GFC. So one, the size of issuance in the low quality bands has increased, and also the size of issuance in what I was talking about earlier, covenant light bonds has increased. So these are the lower end. And generally what happens is people buy those in primary issue, effectively like an IPO. So Italy comes out and it's going to say, it's going to sell 10 billion worth of bonds today and people put their bids in. And they buy them in the primary market. But the problem is if they need to sell them, they have to sell them in the secondary market. And the, the secondary market is the market makers, the investment banks, and then have balance sheet. So at some point, you know, credit markets will freeze up again. It could be tomorrow. It could be in six months. But it, it will happen. And it will happen all the time, time till they change the regulation. And it's, it's a function of the central bankers and the regulators changing the regulations to fight the last crisis. So what happens, they always over-regulate post the fact and then you get a new crisis building mm-hmm. up somewhere else, and then they'll do the same again. And then that's just a function of how this, these cycles work. Okay. That's, uh, I suppose, for people with ETF, bond ETFs listening to this, that sounds quite, uh, I suppose, daunting, the prospect of mm. having a freeze like that. But I suppose you would hope that it's temporary, maybe. maybe yeah, I'd hope it's temporary, months. but I couldn't say it probably Hell. will be. It probably won't be temporary. Yeah. Um, and a lot of funds in Australia that, that are focused on the lower end of credit might 
might have freezes as well mm. because that's just a number an, uh, a function of a credit crunch mm. a normal recession has these kind of moves it's not like you have to get another gfc a normal recession means that sometime in that cycle credit funds will suffer mm. and um, the credit markets will close um i just i just urge your clients to and listeners to to think about what they're owning fixed income you you every institutional um, investor in the world pretty much has fixed income in their portfolio, but you need high quality government exposure. Um, so just think about how you're able to access that and make sure you access in a clean and transparent manner, which is liquid. Um, and yes, there are, there are places within portfolios for credit securities and for hybrids and for term deposits, but they're not at the expense of government bonds. As I mentioned, government bonds are a unique asset class. They offer an mm. og- offer as I mentioned, government bonds are a unique asset class. They offer, offer a negative correlation to equities at times of stretch, which no other classic class does. Over the past 10 years or so, maybe even some might argue a little bit longer, we've seen, I guess, an easing bias globally. Uh, and some people might say that interest rates can't really go lower. So I'm curious to get your take. Um, what happens next, effectively? Does the central bank have any firepower what can investors expect? That, that's the key question of today. And that's, that's, that's the main question I, I believe out of this, this talk today. It's like, what happens from here? Because you're right. I mean, interest rates have been on the nominal GDP and interest rates globally have been on declining trend for the last 40 years. Mm. Yeah. And, if, and we've had inflation fights in central banks. But because of the demographic shift we've been seeing, baby boomers, etc., inflation has been stepping itself lower as nominal GDP has been stepping itself lower. And central banks have been on declining rates path. And now you're reaching a point where there's an oncoming slowing of growth, and the IMF is forecasting that OECD growth is going to slow from here. Um, Now, it doesn't mean we're going into recession, but what's the central bank's response when interest rates in the US are 2.5%, they're 1.5% in Australia? Now, to give you an idea, a normal rate cutting cycle in the US sees interest rates come down by 5%, mm. and they're only at 2.5%. And now this couples with this thing. Anyone who's, any of your listeners that have ever seen me or read anything I've written, I always talk about the fact there's too much debt in the world. And we're at the end game of that now. I fully believe we're at the end game of this because we've got so much debt that you can't continue to create debt to effectively debt debt binge to get GDP. We've reached the end of this road and interest rates are too low. Um, And so what happens is you get a cleansing of the system. So our belief is, and the way I think this plays out, is that we just enter a normal slowdown. Like, we're not saying it's going to be another GFC or credit crunch, just a normal slowdown, which sees US GDP um, start decelerating. And the problem is, though, that the Fed has limited firepower to respond to that. So they're already talking about the next move being a cut. They're already talking about what they do when interest rates hit zero. Yeah, it's in full discussion at the Fed right now. They're on the papers every day talking about, you know, yield caps and all these kind of things they're going to enact. So you can take it as a given that the next interest rate move by the US is going to be a cut. I think it'll be 50 basis points by the end of this year. Um, But when they've cut down towards zero, what happens? And I think what happens is the narrative shifts. And this is a secular shift. This isn't like a cyclical thing that happens every few years. I think we're in the the midst of one of the most exciting times for global economics and global geopolitics and global asset markets in that we're seeing a shift from this disinflationary regime we've been in for the last 40 years to potentially an inflationary regime. 
And that's on the back of the central bank's response and the politicians' response. And I think what's happening is um, you've heard of modern monetary theory. Mm. Um, it's my belief that this is coming to an economy near us pretty mm. soon, sometime in the next few years. It'll most probably start in the US. And the the discussion is already mainstream in the US about, you know, the, the, the theory is that when interest rates go to zero and they can't go much lower, what you do is you just, the government prints debt and does fiscal stimulus and it continues to do this until you see inflation rise. Yep. Right. Now, what central banks have been trying to do for the last 10 years is to engineer inflation and they've not been able to do so. But this is a massive, but what they've been doing is they've been increasing their balance sheet and that money hasn't found its way into the underlying economies because no one wants to borrow. In this way, the Treasury, the US Treasury, or the US government is actually creating demand because it's pumping the money directly into the system. It has to be inflationary. It's just a question of when this happens and, when it, and how it plays out. And this is going to be so interesting to watch over the next few years. For, for some of our listeners that perhaps don't understand the implications for their personal situations and they're thinking... Um, they might have heard you say before, like I think I've heard you say this before, is that QE effectively brought forward future returns. Mm -hmm. What what are their options effectively in that environment that you're just describing? Yeah. So the, 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 this environment will play out in two two ways. Firstly, you don't get, ever get a big change to get a big crisis, as Europe has shown you. Yep. You only get a response when there's something to respond to. So right now, I think the next slowdown and growth stroke recession that we see doesn't have to be a deep one but it's going to be one that necessitates interest rates going down to zero across most of the world and then having little impact. So firstly, it's a slowing growth, disinflationary path, which means bond yields do very, very well. Mm. And I anticipate that US bond yields have peaked and will be heading through 2% and maybe even through 1% over the coming couple of years. So that's the kind of time horizon we're mm -hmm. looking at here. So you'll get this disinflationary trend, inflation heading lower, global growth heading lower, central banks responding. That's phase one. Phase two is the, um, is the realization that central banks are out of power and there's nothing left in the tank. And then the baton for passes quite firmly to governments and fiscal policy. And in that environment, at some point, whether it's one or two or five years in, it turns inflationary. And then that's going to be the tough, the tough part. I think the next few years are going to be reasonably easy to navigate because you just want to be long bonds. Um, and risk assets should do generally well because the central banks have got your back. You know? mm. So you can be the whole risk parity portfolio where you've got long bonds, you've got long credit, you've got long equities, you've got long commodities. Everything should do pretty well. Obviously, volatility will pick up, but you wouldn't say, okay, I expect a massive drawdown by equities. So the next few years should be okay for asset class returns, and I think bonds will perform very well. The problem is, you know, somewhere we say three and five years out at a guess, two and five years, whatever that might that the inflection point might be, it's having to think about how to position your portfolio either as an institution or a, a you know self managed super or an individual investor in a world which we haven't seen for 40 years mm. which is a rising inflationary environment and being able you know all of the tools we use as asset managers or individual investors are generally built around past returns and past correlations so you look at you know mean variance optimization markowitz you know all of the models we have are built using the last 40 30 40 years of data and they're all going to be obsolete mm. so you need to think about and I actually don't know how that's going to play out, but we're spending a lot of time thinking about it and looking at you know, machine learning 
you know, so our systems will adapt very quickly to the changing environment mm-hmm. um, to enable us to navigate that period. But I know, I know that it's going to be, you know, it has to be good for real assets. Yeah, it has to be good for real assets. Financial assets, I'm not so sure about. Okay. So effectively, for the next few years, it's almost um, business as usual. for More of the same, disinflationary. Yeah. yeah. I think the, re- the global reflation trade that was driven by the Chinese stimulus in 15 and 16 is completely petered out now. And now it's a return to the disinflationary environment, um, which, which is coupled with a slowing growth scenario, which means central banks are cutting rates. Mm. Um, you know, I think the RBA will be cutting rates reasonably soon. We'll be cutting rates down to, you know, most probably 75 basis points, and then we'll see where we go from there. But then it'll most probably be some form of quantitative easing because, you know, we're, you're coming through 25 years of growth here. There's excesses in the system which, which need to be dealt with. Mm. Okay. You've talked about uh, the volatility fund that you now have yeah. and you run. Uh, during the GFC, we saw correlations you know, effectively go to one, all mm-hmm. of the major asset classes effectively moving in lockstep. Mm-hmm. Looking towards the future, do you think you've mentioned uh, government bonds as probably the exception to this, but in terms of everything else, um, how I'm trying to think about how an investor could position themselves in terms of is the 60-40 portfolio, uh, diversified stocks to bonds yeah. portfolio still a viable strategy in your mind? Um, I think it is. I mean, that, the key to everything is the old thing, the only free lunch in investing is a diversified portfolio. Mm. The great thing about US equities is there's not many of them. And that's because of the financial engineering that's been taking place. People have been issuing bonds and buying back equities. That helps them drive up their uh, EPS, but it means the amount of equities on, on, um, in the market has been falling. And so US equities are actually a scarce asset right now. So, so from that point of view, I don't really have a problem with owning an equity and government bond portfolio. As I mentioned earlier, it's the stuff in the middle. It's it's the credit securities and arguably the lower grade credit securities, which there's been too many of them issued and too low quality and they're over-owned, mm-hmm. whether it by being you know, personal pension plans, mutual funds, 401k plans, or via ETFs. So I think that that's the area people really need to be wary about. So I would argue, run the barbell approach, run run a higher weighting in equities and higher weighting in government bonds and underweight the stuff in the middle that you know is going to come under pressure in a, in a, um, in a slow and growth environment and you know that will shut up as well. So you won't be able to transact it. So I'm really advocating, you know, do diversify your portfolio, run a, bit, a little bit higher cash because cash for me is an option to buy things in the future. It has a value. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, run that high-quality barbell portfolio, but just be very aware of any credit and hybrid you have sitting in the middle. Mm-hmm. I was meaning to ask you too about this new volatility fund. How do you think about that tactically, given your outlook? If you were managing your own portfolio, for example, yeah. how would you use that to uh, position for what volatility may come? Yeah. So the, the great thing about the volatility fund, it's a systematic fund we built, and we're one of the few managers I mean, um, in the world that have a product like this. Um, but in terms of where we're pitching this product and who it's for, it's for large institutions, right. very large institutions, um, who are able to get access, who have a very specific need to protect equity downside. But the great thing about it is because we started building the fund and the strategy out about four years ago. So I've got dedicated guys working on volatility here, which is incredibly unusual within Australia to have dedicated vol guys, volatility guys. But what it does is it gives us signals. 
And those signals we utilize across the suite of products we run. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a fund called Dynamic Income Fund, which invests in Australian investment grade bonds, has a duration underneath it, and opportunistically will invest into emerging market sovereign bonds when we believe the environment's right to access that accrual. But what we're doing is we're using the signals of the volatility fund to help us manage the asset allocation of the dynamic income fund. So what you're doing is we're taking the learnings and the signals and all of the data we've built over many, many years and actually utilizing on a product which your end investor, the, the, the individual investor can buy. And so that's the way that I think is best to think about the Vol Fund. It's about the learnings it gives us and the ability to to help us market time that you wouldn't have if you didn't have a product like this. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I've, I've come across a few of these in my time. Not saying mm. it's identical to what you have, but it, it uh, seems to be you know make use of derivatives. Sometimes we would you know, you'd use um, the VIX index, mm-hmm. and effectively you would get coverage when volatility spikes. Hmm. Um, so is that the type of signal you're looking for, like a spike in volatility triggers a signal that you would use then across your other funds? Yeah. In simplistic so terms? That, in simplistic terms, that's actually right. It's exactly right. What we're looking for is a period when, when one, we think volatility is going to increase, but two, when volatility is cheap enough that the odds are in our favor mm. for it increasing. Because often when vol, the, the thing with volatility is, when it's darkest, when if you have a you have some protection via volatility, and it's working your way, as a human behaviour means that when it's darkest, you want to be adding into mm-hmm. that. But that's invariably the time you should be monetizing and taking the chips off the table and locking mm-hmm. that gain in. So having a systematic process enables us to do that, and it means that it's very um, transparent and it's very clean. And so you're exactly right. We utilise those signals across the whole suite of funds we run. Mm, okay. And I think as we come to the end of the conversation, I think it'd be remiss of me not to ask just a very simple high-level question, how you see the Australian economy faring. You've talked, I would say, pretty positively over the short term. Mm -hmm. For listeners at home, seeing property prices fall or go sideways, the news sounds pretty grim. How do you, where do you see Australia in the next one to three years? Um. I think Australia's navigated the slowdown post-mining incredibly well, as we've seen tourism and education pick up and fill the gap. Um, and I think right now we're reasonably oppositions. I mean, we've grown out of a number of the excesses that we've had. You know, you've got negative real wage rates, and so we've not had this big drawdown. Um, but where we are right now, when growth is you know below trend and we've got inflation materially below trend and we have nothing that I can see as an impetus to change that around. So so from that point of view, I think that we need lower rates in Australia. And because one, there is the question, well, what does lower rates give us? Mm. Well, I would argue, well, lower rates give us some kind of impetus to growth, but also gives us a weaker currency. Mm. And it's quite clear there's a currency war going on and everyone else is racing to the bottom. And unless we join that, we're going to end up with a stronger currency, which will be detrimental on our economy. The second thing about Australia, which does worry me, though, is that is our positioning within the US and China, where we rely on China for so much of our GDP via exports, but we rely on the US from our strategic partnerships. And there comes a point when you've seen the US kind of, um, well, you've seen this situation play out in Canada, where where China is now um, 
now hurting them for their starts and um, the the Huawei um, executive mm. where they detained. And you've seen money just leaving Canada, no new money coming in. The Vancouver housing market is falling and they make an example of Canada. And so I worry about the fact that given our alliance with the US and how close we align, that sometime we're picked to, t- we're, we, we're asked to pick sides. And if we are asked to pick sides, well, I assume we'll be picking with the US, but I don't know how that's going to work out. But ultimately, it would have to be negative for GDP growth. Mm. So right now, I think we're in a decent situation. The economy needs a bit of a pickup and interest rate hike, uh, sorry, interest rate cuts will most probably help. But I do worry about the medium term structural position we're in as an economy because we've ridden this this positioning between having one foot in the east and one foot in the west for a long time and it's worked to our advantage but i worry about the fact it won't going forward okay i suppose that's something that we'll watch develop over time and something that people who are keen to follow that and hear your thoughts on it could do so if they visited say the pendle website yep so do you have a, a newsletter you produce monthly reports for each of the funds yeah so we have um so you can visit us on the the pendlegroup.com website uh, we put out weekly blog posts. Um, we put out a monthly uh, kind of quite punchy newsletter as well. Mm-hmm. And then for clients, we put out a quarterly uh, deep dive piece. So there's lots of um, collateral that comes out. There's lots of ways to follow. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love it if your um, kind of re- readers and listeners kind of um, engaged and gave me feedback on the things they'd like us to talk about and yeah, discuss. Wonderful. I'm sure they will. They're pretty engaged. And uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, a few of them will come along and subscribe to newsletters and, and take a look at your monthlies because it is a story that uh, we all need to pay attention to, particularly Australia and US and China. Yeah. Um, as we come to the final question of the conversation, mm. um, it's very, a bit more lighthearted. Yeah. Uh, it's to ask you if you could go back in time and, and tell a younger you one thing mm. about money, finance or investing, what would it be? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think there's a few things. And I've only realized them and, you know, really, really they've solidified in my mind over the last few years when I've been running a big and a very big and growing team. It's, it's to know who you are. So, so finance can be anything. It's just there's a few, I think, life lessons which, which really help. So one, knowing who you are. So you've got strengths and you've got weaknesses. If you've got weaknesses, that's absolutely fine. You don't go and need to go and fix them. But as long as you know what they are and you can work hmm. around them, that's fine. That, that, you know. Second thing is when you've worked out who you are and you know what your weaknesses are, be disciplined about managing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as me as investment manager, I build a process and I, I build kind of uh, stop gaps and false, you know, fail safes in my process because I know myself and I know what my, my biases are. So I build in systems to, to stop the bad things I do. And I build them into investment process deliberately because I know my styles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but if you take it back to a broader picture, well, just know who you are. Make sure you can manage. You don't have to fix your problems. Just as long as you know what they are, that's fine. And try and manage around them. And the third thing is work as hard as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Because other guys can be smarter than you, a lot smarter than you. But if you work hard, well, it gives you a bit of an edge. And so that's the kind of ethos we run with my team and certainly with the whole of Pendle. It's like we've got a lot of smart guys here and they work really hard. And... We're all trying to get the best outcome we possibly can for our clients. It's wonderful advice, Wimble. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.